All right, everybody, welcome back to episode number two of 2023 of The Mental Game. Today, I am honored and excited to be blessed with the presence of someone with a similar background to mine um, in the sense that uh, ballet and, and performance, psychology and mental health, I feel like there are fewer of people with those backgrounds. Um, it's growing, which is exciting. Um, and so that's why I'm super, super excited to have Miss Ariana Schimitz on the show. Ariana, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. And yeah, I'm excited to be here. And yeah, I, I second that there just aren't a lot of people yeah. with a ballet background who are in, in the world of sport and mm -hmm. performance psychology and mental health. So excited to talk shop with you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Well, we'll get right to it. I appreciate your time. So tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to where you are today. Yeah, so uh, I started pretty intense ballet training at the age of 11. I grew up doing kind of gymnastics, sport, dance. Um, but then at age of 11, I remember vividly going to the public library and taking out this uh VHS tape on the Vaganova school in Russia. And I watched that and I was just super inspired by the students in the school and kind of decided, oh my gosh, this is something that I really want to get into. So at that age, I went to a pre-professional training program and kind of put all my effort into becoming a professional dancer. Um, and fortunately, I was able to do that at the age of 17 when I um, got my first studio company position. And then you know, throughout the eight years after that. Um, so, you know, I had a lot of really great experiences in dance and in ballet specifically, but it's also what kind of led me into the performance psychology slash mental health side of things. You know, there were a lot of things that I struggled with personally throughout my pre-professional and professional career. And then a lot of things that I saw my colleagues and peers struggle with. And I kind of got to this point where I realized I didn't really want to work towards mastery in ballet anymore. I wanted to work towards mastery and helping others, you know, perform at their highest level. So at that point, I decided to pursue my master's degree in sport and performance psychology um, and open up my private practice persistent psych. And now I'm working towards my doctoral degree in counseling psychology to become more of a well-rounded practitioner in both the mental health side and performance psychology side. Mm. Wow, that's a lot. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you ever just step back from that and look at how much you've done in such a short amount of time? Like, that's really incredible. Well, I, I appreciate your your kind words, but yeah. um, I think I'm one of those people who just kind of puts my head down and works. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's one of those things I probably don't practice enough is looking up and seeing all the mm -hmm. progress that I've made. But mm -hmm. um, still, a lot of work to be done in this field. So I'm um, very motivated to keep pushing forward. Absolutely. Um, so take me back a little bit. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a pretty urban part of Connecticut in Bristol, Connecticut. Okay. And most of my training at the pre-professional level was done at the Nutmeg Conservatory for the Arts, which is in Connecticut as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then kind of spent summers all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, a few at SAB, a few at Washington Ballet, um, Kirov, Oh my gosh, this is like going into the back of my memory. Yeah, here. right. Uh, you gotta dig deep. And Joffrey, I think those were kind of the main summer intensives mm -hmm. I did. New York or Chicago? New York. Uh -huh. Okay, 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 fabulous. Awesome. Okay, and then forgive me, what age did you say you picked up that book on Vaganova and knew that this was something you wanted to pursue? Yeah, so I was about 11 years old. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that when you started your training or did you start before that? It was just at that moment that you decided it was something you wanted to pursue more heavily. So a kind of funny story about that. I was dancing at that point, actually mm. at another Nutmeg. It was a studio that was also called Nutmeg. Uh, that was more of a competition studio. You know, you go everything from ballet to acro to tap, yep. jazz, the whole nine yards. Um, so I was training there, you know, just kind of recreationally. And then picked up that book and was like, no, this is something I've got to pursue and I've got to kind of, you know, push hard to do that. So at that point, uh, changed to the Nutmeg Conservatory and 
you know, started developing my ballet technique and uh, working towards that as a career. Wow, that's incredible. I feel like I totally know people from the Nutmeg Conservatory. I'm not remembering some some people mm -hmm. I went to school with. Did you have anyone that went to Indiana University that you remember? Ooh. Because I was in mm -hmm. IU's ballet program and I totally feel like there were people, they might have been younger than me. I'm I'm not remembering, I'm not matching the school with a person. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know, but I just wanted to ask that off the top just to see if you remembered anybody. Off the top of my head, no. Okay. But I'm okay. sure there definitely are connections. Probably. It's a it's small, a small world. world. It's such a small world. Okay. Yeah. Got you. Awesome. So it, at the age of 11, a, a switch flipped within you. Yeah. Um, and then what were your first experiences like then being in more of that pre-professional setting as opposed to, you know, competition dance studios when it comes at least to ballet. I was a comm kid too before I did ballet. And so, you know, kind of understand that, but speak maybe to that transition in terms of, you know, I feel like when you're in a pre-professional setting, it's more of like you're doing this as a job for a job where it's kind of like maybe your life revolves around ballet more. And so speak to kind of what that transition was like and what that experience was like for you. Hmm. Yeah, that transition was hard. And it's it's funny that you ask that question because I haven't really reflected on that before. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I've reflected on the transition from pre-professional to professional and from right. professional to the world of psychology, but that transition is not one I often think about. But it was tough. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think I was always a very or I still am a very hardworking individual. So I had that going for me, but I just didn't have the foundation of technique that the other girls in my class had at that age. So I fall extremely far behind in that regard, you know, in things like um, I didn't really have great turnout because it wasn't something that I had trained or something that came naturally to me. Um, so I remember that kind of being a struggle, you know, obviously at that age, um, starting point work was really difficult and I hadn't really developed those foundational skills to start points. So um, I do remember feeling kind of like an imposter in that regard, um, in that space, because it wasn't something I was familiar with, but pushed really hard to get through that. And, you know, within a few years, I felt at the same level as um, the peers around me in, in that training program. Well, and I'm also wondering, because you had said you felt behind, I feel like you said the transition was at 11 years old was when you like, I know that's when you read the book, but was that when you transitioned from that competition dance studio to that more pre-professional setting? Yeah, I think okay. that was around 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like when you say that, the first thing I think of is like, oh, that's too late. I feel like maybe that's a stereotype in ballet. If a female presenting person is starting point work mm -hmm. that late, then they're almost be like behind in multiple regards in terms of like setting yourself up then for the future. I don't know if that's something you felt or if you were aware of that at the time. Yeah, it's a great point. I I kind of was on the cusp, you know, like there, I definitely could have started earlier. And in a lot of ways, I did feel like I started too late, but it wasn't like I came in at 13. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like that would have been a lot more challenging. So okay. it was kind like of the high that. school kind of age. Exactly. I was yeah. kind of on the cusp where I could um, develop those skills and start point without it being, you know, like, without me being really, really far behind. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there were any advantages to starting that more serious training at like that cusp age, as opposed to being in that environment since the age of three or four? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it kind of goes into that concept of not, um, you know, really zeroing in on a sport or yeah, that's, that was my thinking. I mean, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. So I know a lot of when we're looking at research on that, we're not talking about a 12 year old, we're talking about like a 17, 18 year old. Sure. But I think in some ways, it was really good that I had a broad foundation mm -hmm. uh, of skills. And, you know, in the other on the other side of things, my decision to really pursue dance at that level was hundred percent self-determined mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't like my parents put me in that pre-professional training program like you know i went up to them and said i want to do this and it was something that kind of came out of my own motivation so i think that was really helpful mm -hmm. um and definitely helped me push forward even when i felt like i was kind of falling behind mm -hmm. that's powerful okay so because you have the experiences you do in the past you do i'm kind of going to flip between 
asking your thoughts from the kind of performance psychology perspective, but then also just wanting to hear your perspective because you have such an incredible one given the experiences. So my mind is going now to that kind of burnout. And I'm wondering from your doing research and from what you've seen, is it more likely that someone probably enjoys what they're doing and uh, the longevity um, is, let's see, they're in the sport longer if, if that self-determined factor is there or I'm wondering if there's something else that's there for that. Mm -hmm. So I guess your question's kind of around if you're in this position because it's your choice yeah. is burnout as relevant is that yes yeah yeah I didn't I didn't yes thank you for phrasing that better <laughs> yeah no it's it's an interesting concept and it's mm. funny that you asked that I was just reading a study I think it was one of the um latest journal articles from ASP that they put out but it was kind of talking about how athletic identity can actually help with pushing off burnout which was an interesting perspective but when i started to think about it more it made sense to me you know if you're really like i was at that age i was so gung-ho on becoming a professional dancer mm -hmm. that i you know even though maybe that amount of work would have caused burnout in another setting or in another mm -hmm. situation it was like a self-determined motivation and i so identified with what i was doing that it mm -hmm. didn't feel super draining. It was almost, mm -hmm. it was almost motivating, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of thinking equating that to like a why, like the identity gives you a purpose behind what you're doing as opposed to, um, I, I would assume if you're less identifying with a certain thing that it would actually, well, it would probably be more difficult to sustain motivation over an extended amount of time. So that kind of makes a lot of sense. And again, forgive me as I'm, I'm going to go all over the place with this. But bringing back to then you had started in that more pre-professional training, I assume that kind of went all through high school. Did you go to like a normal high school or were you kind of bunhead all the way? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I was bunhead all the way. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, so at that point, I actually uh, moved into the dorms of the Nutmeg Conservatory. Um, and so we had, I think, three to four hours of academics in the morning and then the rest was training. And then my senior year of high school, I ended up taking a contract with Washington Ballet Studio Company. So I did my senior year of high school, I would take like my academic classes at night after mm. rehearsal day and finished up my um, high school education that way. But very much bunhead throughout my high school experience. Fair enough. You'll find quickly that I am not so bunhead. And so I'm probably going to miss some things that you say because of my lack of that. So <laughs> Anyway, um, okay, so what was it like then transitioning to the Washington School of Ballet and that switching because you you had gone from kind of, I wouldn't say recreational and competition, but in terms of ballet, that sort of recreational to pre-professional, and then you had mentioned reflecting more on that pre-professional to then studio company setting. So what was that transition like? Yeah, that was another really hard transition, you know, um, in some ways, when I left the pre-professional training program, I was kind of a big fish in a small pond. You know, I was doing more featured roles. I, you know, it felt like what I was doing was challenging, but I was also, you know, getting a lot of good feedback from it. And it was, it was really helping my confidence in a lot of ways. And then obviously when you transition into a studio company or a professional company, um, you know, you're kind of bottom of the barrel again. So that was challenging. You know, it was it was hard to go from doing so much dancing to then just being in the back of the core mm. or like the third cast of the core, mostly just hanging out in the back of a studio during rehearsals. Mm -hmm. And I remember struggling with that. It was hard for me to figure out, like, how can I stay in shape? How can I make sure I'm working on more of the mental side of things like confidence if I'm not dancing, you know, and that yeah. was. Well, so was you were like, you were aware of, you were aware of mental skills like that, even when you were dancing. I was because okay. I noticed, you know, pretty quickly that the confidence I had developed and it wasn't a whole lot of confidence in my pre-professional training program, but the little bit of confidence I had in that sphere kind of went back to zero mm. as I transitioned into the studio company. 
Um, so that was definitely something I became aware of was like, okay, I'm not dancing as much. So how can I stay really strong? And also all that confidence I had built up over the years is kind of reset. So how can I work on that while I'm not dancing? Um, so I did struggle with that a bit. Um, and something that was helpful for me in that time was reaching out to the older dancers in the company and just asking like, okay, how do you do this? You know, and uh, you started at the bottom of a company once, like, how did you stay in shape? How did you work on these things? Um, and a lot of them were super helpful in in that regard and in giving advice and, you know, kind of normalizing some of my, you know, my discomfort. Gosh, I feel like that's such a big deal. And something that people probably overlook is just the art of positive supports or the art of reaching out. So how did you get yourself? Because I would imagine if I'm walking into a situation, you know, we we might think differently now because because of like where we're at. But, you know, someone who's 17, 18, walking into that position, you know, principal company members could be, you know, 30, 35, whatever that looks like. But I say that to say it could be intimidating trying to have those conversations. So how did you get yourself there? How did you you know, how did you go about that? How did you build the confidence necessary to 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 go ask them those questions? Yeah, it took a long time. Um, you know, I so I ended up getting that contract. I went there for a summer intensive and through the summer intensive, I earned my contract in the studio mm-hmm. company. So I was there throughout the summer and there were company dancers who would take class. So they were kind of around. And then um, it is there's not a whole lot of people in that company or at that time there weren't a whole lot of people in the company. So it was on the smaller side. Mm. It wasn't a ranked company and it still isn't a ranked company. Um, And, you know, I think because of that, there is more of a community uh, mentality in that. Um, But it still did take me a long time to be able to, to speak with people. And I think that was just, from being with them in company class every day and in the locker room and, and things like that, I kind of um, developed more of a comfort, but it took some time. Mm, okay. So just like a familiarity, maybe once mm-hmm. you settled in, got used to what it looked like, because I'm imagining studio companies, I think from what I understand, you know, Washington Ballet might be different, but I was in a um, second company. Mm-hmm. Um, is that because second company kind of does what you're saying in terms of, um, you know, uh, core stuff, very background, a lot of sitting, but second yeah. company kind of also has their own stuff at the same time is, mm-hmm. was the studio company like that? Or was it, you are just bottom of the barrel. You don't have anything on the side. Mm-hmm. So we did our own things as well. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I don't know, I guess I'd ask your opinion on that. I've always felt like studio company and second company are like the same term or different terms for the same right. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, is that your experience with it where you felt like they're, they're similar, just kind of under different names? Yeah, I, it, I feel like it, and I'm asking that question and my answer is probably, it depends. Yeah. I feel like different and, and right. And like, I feel like I know companies that, you know, there, there are so many added levels to it. And I feel like from my perspective, studio company I think typically takes the place. If I'm thinking about it kind of on the fly, I feel like it takes the place of a second company. I feel like the difference from what I understand though, is studio company is more a part of the company as opposed to also being a separate entity. Mm -hmm. Like when I was in Kansas city, we were very much, you know, like I said, core, you got all the roles that you didn't want to do like mother ginger and the humongous costume that everyone just kind of has to pay their dues. Yeah. Flower Um, number 75 in the back. You said what? Flower number 75 on the way back. <laughs> yes, exactly. That no, you know, no one can see unless you're up top, but like you just got to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. But I feel like the second company was kind of like they gave us our opportunities to perform on our own. We still kind of did our own rep um, yeah. and we're very much separate while also still, you know, we still took company class. I think we might have had one day where we only did second company class, um, but I would imagine studio company is is there are less opportunities to still like to perform on your own, I would think. I don't know. Yeah, I think it, again, just kind of depends on the organization yeah. and the way that they have it structured. We did mm-hmm. do a little bit that was on our own. Um, so there were definitely opportunities to do more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like soloist or, or principal um, roles or things in the smaller production. So that was definitely something that was, that was there. But yeah, the main 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess mm-hmm. most of our time was supporting <laughs> the main company and yeah. like that. Just have to pay your dues. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Okay. So how long were you at the Washington Ballet? I was only there for a season. Okay. Yeah. I was mm-hmm. just there for a season and I kind of hopped around a bit uh, in trying to find a company that that worked well for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think when talking to young dancers, that's something I always try to normalize too, is that you're not going to necessarily uh, audition for a company and then be there for your whole mm-hmm. career, mm-hmm. you know? I think um, we have that perfect picture of that happening and it's great if it does, but that was definitely not my experience. You know, it was definitely a lot of trial and error in finding something that worked well for me. And then, you know, having an artistic staff that felt like I was a good fit as well. Cause that's, you know, it's a, it's a two-sided thing, right? Um, they have to be willing to work with you and you have to be willing to work with them. And, um, finding that was was difficult and i ultimately found that at the colorado ballet where where i finished my career but again that took that took some some years you know of of trying to figure out what was best for me okay so i i i think it's really important for us to for people listening also to know like you i feel like you come from a very empowered perspective like your approach sounds like you were empowered in your decision making and what I'm wondering is, I feel like a lot of people act from the perspective of, I just need to go where I get a job. I'll fit in to what their mold looks like. You know, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll I'll give to you, give, give, give to you, as opposed to what I'm hearing is you were more reflective in terms of what fits with me as well. Kind of like I imagine you're interviewing me, I'm interviewing you kind of mm-hmm. a thing. Yeah. And so I'm wondering how, you know, because you had mentioned working with dancers on this, how do you work with dancers on coming from that perspective, as opposed to just wanting to give them everything, you know, whether that's giving them the power or essentially you're saying, Hey, I'll do whatever you need me to do. I'll fit into what you have in mind. You know, how do you come from a more empowered perspective? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because obviously there's a lot of hindsight bias that's happening, right. As I'm reflecting on Mm -hmm. that, Mm-hmm. And I can't confidently say that that was my mindset at that time. Okay. You know? mm-hmm. um, and I think, you know, sometimes I would love for everyone to to think about the audition process like that. But the truth is sometimes, you know, you get a job and you only get one job or you don't get a job it. that year <laughs> and you just have to take it. Um, and you don't really have much choice in that matter um, other than, you know, doing freelance gigs for a year or training for another year. Sometimes you just don't have choice. So um, something that I'll often talk with dancers on is, okay, you don't have a lot of control in this situation, right? You're taking this contract because it was the one offered to you. How can you control some of those small things? Mm. You know, like even if you go to that company and it's right off the bat, not something you're really enjoying, what can you, you know, start to develop on your own? Maybe it's starting to do audition tapes earlier or maybe it's just really working on your technique so the next time audition season comes around you're that much more ready um so trying to focus on the things that you can control in a setting where it feels like you know you have no control whatsoever Mm -hmm. yeah i love it i think sometimes people forget that you know no matter what happens we are only able to focus on the things we can control as -hmm. opposed to like you said you know, for instance, someone doesn't get a contract, you know, my life is over, I can't dance anymore. Or like you had said, then taking from that, okay, I need to work on my technique, I need to work on my, you know, artistic skills, whatever that looks like in order to still focus on that, and then put that best foot forward in the future. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really love that perspective. Um, So how did you then find Colorado Ballet? Because you had mentioned that maybe was more of a, a a better fit. I don't know, I can't remember the words you used, but um, is where you did finish your career though. So how was it being in Colorado Ballet? Yeah, so it was a very roundabout road to get there. Um, And this is not something I've talked a whole lot about. So I'm glad that I have the opportunity to do it. But basically after Washington Ballet, it didn't work out for me to be there. Um, the, The company director didn't really feel that I would be a great asset to the company at the time, which was hard to take, but I did my best to, you know, persevere and audition Mm -hmm. places, Mm -hmm. ended up taking a uh, studio company position at Colorado Ballet and was there for a season and immediately felt like 
this was a good place for me. Um, I, you know, I had the opportunity to do a lot of great things and I really loved the uh, community that was there. So I was there for a year, um, but at that time, the season was rather short for Studio Company. So I think we were contracted until like February or March or something like that. Uh, so at the end of the season, I still didn't know if I was going to be promoted into the main company. So I went to do auditions again, and I got a contract with uh, Ballet Arizona. Mm. So I took that, and a week into being there, I found out that I got a contract with Colorado Ballet. Oh my gosh, are you kidding <laughs> for the me? Company um, as an apprentice, oh and uh, that was really challenging because I I didn't know that that was going to happen, and I left. Mm. You know, Wait, I'm sorry. I apologize for interrupting. Did so? Did you join Ballet Arizona? like in March, like March, April. So like, was that for the rest of their season? Yes. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I just wanted to make sure I understood what was happening. No, great question. It was kind of a weird situation. They mm. were doing um, an all balancing program and they needed a lot of dancers. So mm -hmm. I went out mm -hmm. to audition to class and they were like, great, you know, you can come next year. And we also need someone like next week. Like today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So oh, um, wow. ended oh, up wow finishing the rest of their season and then stayed there for two more seasons. Wow, okay. um, mm. You know, at that same time, figuring out that I had gotten the contract in Colorado, which was kind of always in the back of my mind. Mm. Um, and then at my, you know, when I was at Ballet Arizona, same thing wasn't really a great fit for me. I met some wonderful people and had some great opportunities, but um, you know, again, the, the company director didn't feel like I was a great fit for that space. So I ended up reaching out to Colorado Ballet again and saying, you know, I really enjoyed my time there. Is there any way I could come back? Um, and at that time they said, yes, they said we, wow. you know, this was kind of at the start of the season, they already started the season. It was like a month in and they said, yeah, we, um, we had a dancer who, got injured we need someone else for swan lake are you kidding so, me no i'm not kidding so Whoa. that's what happened I, I joined, yeah exactly i joined their season a month late um that year and then uh stayed there for the next next couple of years but it was wow. a much better fit for me um both from the artistic staff side the repertoire that we were doing and also just the community so again i i'd say that all to say um it's going to take a while sometimes for you to find the right fit. I eventually did, but you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of dead ends in the process. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not always going to be that perfect um, route, but you just got to keep pushing forward. Was there ever a point when you were at ballet Arizona where you were regretful because you had mentioned like it wasn't as great of a fit and you mm -hmm. had turned down a position as an apprentice with, Colorado Ballet. So was there ever a point within that maybe that first season or the second season where you were like, oh my goodness, I made a mistake, but you still had to continue on and put your best foot forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I reflected on that a lot um, because, you know, it's, it's a hard decision to make, but the way that I kind of went into it was, okay, I already committed. Mm. I'm already here. I'm going to give this my best shot. Um, and then, you know, kind of see what happens. And so again, I did stay there for two and a half years and then ultimately went back to, to Colorado Ballet. Mm -hmm. But that was a challenge. It was a challenge to be able to see the big picture um, when I had that kind of difficult decision to make. Yeah, gosh. And then had you, were, were you technically supposed to be in Ballet Arizona before you went back to Colorado Ballet? Like, because you said the season had started and I know Ballet Arizona at least this year, didn't start until like September or October even maybe. So was it similar to that where you weren't sure? Like how did that how did that kind of come to be? If you don't mind me asking. No, I don't mind at all. So after my second year there, my contract was not renewed okay. with, color, uh, with um, Ballet Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, again, wasn't, wasn't a great fit for me. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of started my time there where I, I had a lot of really good roles in the beginning and, uh, you know, I felt like I was improving a lot, but kind of towards the end of my time realized it just wasn't a great fit for me and the rep that they were doing was really difficult for me. And, um, again, just, just not a great fit probably from both sides. Uh, and so 
at that point, I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do next. I was thinking about potentially freelancing or training a little bit more to audition the next year. And then kind of, you know, that thought of, oh, well, I had a really good fit at Colorado Ballet. Let me just mm -hmm. reach out to see if there's an opportunity. And um, again, I was very fortunate and lucky in that there was an open position and I could go back and, and join that company. I feel like that's a lesson right there in that you just never know what's going to happen until you try. Right. And that's mm -hmm. really powerful in itself. When you're saying fit, mm -hmm. can you be more specific as to what that, like for you, what that was and then how other people can maybe start to determine within, within themselves, what that looks like? Like how do people go about figuring out what does that even for me, you know, what does that fit look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of take it from my experience and also from a performance psychology um, perspective in that for someone to grow, there needs to be this level of challenge, but also this level of support. And those need to be, you know, kind of in balance with one another. And if one's too high or the other one's too high, you're not going to improve. So that was something that I did find at Colorado Ballet, that I had the support that I needed, but also there was enough challenge mm -hmm. for me to to keep pushing and to move forward. That was not necessarily the case for the other companies I worked with. Um, I felt like that maybe the challenge or the um, there was potentially a lack of support. So I didn't feel like I could confidently come into that space and give it my all. Um, some of that was from a physical side and maybe I just wasn't technically strong in certain things. And I think also a lot of that was more of the mental barrier side. You know, I didn't, I didn't have the confidence walking into that space because maybe I didn't have the support I needed or, or whatever it could be. Um, but I think those are, that's kind of what I mean by fit. There needs to be that level of challenge, but also that level of support that's really conducive to, to working towards mastery or working towards performance, excellent performance, excellence. Mm, what a beautiful answer. I appreciate that. That was really, really well put. Um, and I want to make sure I get to that kind of performance psych side of it. Um, yeah. So how long were you at Colorado Ballet? So altogether, five and a half, almost six years. Wow. Okay. So you were able to sustain longer, maybe in that kind of positive environment to you. I would, I would guess partially because of that environment fit. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, right, absolutely. Mm -hmm. No, no, I think that's a great observation. Um, it was an environment where I felt more comfortable and where I could really push myself um, so again, yeah, that fit was, was there for me. Okay. Amazing. So at what point in your career were you thinking? So like for me, for instance, I had, um, gotten diagnosed with anxiety. I had a concussion and it was through that very, very dark time that I realized mental health in this space wasn't being addressed the way I thought it could. And, you know, found sports psychology for, so what was it for you? Where did you find that passion for, mental health, it sounds like it's always been there a little bit or some awareness of it has always been there, but what was that for you? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think it was always there. And again, you know, we're kind of reflecting on my past with that with that bias of having more experience and knowledge now. 2020 but hindsight. Exactly. Um, but when I was going through it, I struggled. Mm -hmm. I really struggled, you know, mm -hmm. like losing or not um, getting contract renewed was devastating for me at that point. I also, you know, I struggled with performance anxiety. Mm. I struggled with body image. I struggled with all kinds of things. Um, and there was always kind of that awareness that this could be better. <laughs> like I, if I wasn't dealing with these things, it could be better. Um, so that was kind of always in my mind. And then again, you know, just watching peers and colleagues needing to step away from the stage because of performance issues or because of mental health issues, you know, it kind of just started to add up in my mind. Like I, I need to do something about this. This is really important, not only for myself, but also for the next generation of dancers. So um, I would say my interest was kind of always there because of the things that I went through, but then also um, just observing mm -hmm. other people. Mm-hmm. That was a big one for me is I remember when I was injured, I was doing a lot more sitting and just chatting with people on the side and kind of through just, you know, speaking to them, but also more listening than anything. I was, I think I was just kind of struck by, oh my gosh, there's a lot going on that, 
you know, because we don't necessarily have these conversations all the time. Like I was only having more conversation because I was injured in the studio. And I don't think I had realized how much was going on or how much people were struggling or, you know, what issues there were until I had that bit of stillness to kind of observe and, and interact and take all that in. So that's cool to hear your perspective as well. Um, were you at Colorado Ballet when that kind of all came together or what, you know, where were you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would say that, you know, my decision to step away or to um, pursue performance psychology was during my time at Colorado Ballet. Um, you know, I, I again, again, always had that interest in psychology because of my experience and the experience people around me. And then um, my passion kind of shifted, you know, instead of wanting to pursue becoming a soloist or a principal, you know, I decided, no, I, I really want to help other people um, be able to pursue those things and use what I know from both um, the personal experience side and also the performance psychology side to help people get there. Mm -hmm. um, so there was kind of like a an epiphany that happened in that moment where I was like, you know what? It feels it feels more fulfilling for me to help others at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, was that transition difficult, though? Like, I, I would imagine if we're going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, that identity piece, mm -hmm. that was something that was really hard for me was stepping away because I had only to that point professionally seen myself as a ballet dancer. And I didn't know how to transfer any of those skills. I mean, I had a bachelor's degree, but I didn't know how to transfer those skills into something else. I felt like if I gave up on ballet, I was wasting those years that I was a ballet dancer. So how was that transition for you? How did you get yourself to do that? Man, you're asking some hard questions yeah. today. Yeah, I mean, it was hard. It was really hard. I remember the first time thinking like I could do something else. I couldn't even say that out loud, you know, like to even have that thought of yep. I can step away from this mm -hmm. was so emotional for me. Um, you know, I think the first time I said it out loud, I'd cried. The first time I called my parents and said, I think I want to try something else, I cried again. It was just, it was hard to talk about to say, okay, I've worked my whole life for this and now I'm going to do something different. Like what? That's crazy. Um, so it took, it took a lot of time. I think, um, once I was able to, to acknowledge that I had those thoughts, um, and I was able to talk to my support system about it, then I, you know, made all those small decisions at that time. I was, so I worked towards my bachelor's while I was dancing, um, like night classes and, uh, in the off season. So fortunately I did have my bachelor's degree at that point um, and then started to apply to master's programs. And it was kind of interesting because uh, basically my career with Colorado Ballet ended because of COVID. Hmm. Um, you know, we were scheduled to have one more program of the year and I was really excited because there were some ballets in that program like Petite more and in the upper room that I was doing some pretty good roles in. And unfortunately it got canceled uh, due to COVID. So it was in a lot of ways like ripping off a Band-Aid, you know, there wasn't really that uh, slow drawn out transition. It was just kind of over in mm -hmm. one day, mm -hmm. um, which, was, which was challenging. But I think in a lot of ways it made the transition a little bit easier because you know, I really couldn't miss dancing because there was no one dancing. It wasn't <laughs> happening. Yeah. Like, I would have been, you know, not dancing regardless. No FOMO. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So in some ways it made the transition a little bit easier because there was nothing going on. Um, and I think, you know, how I, I, I spoke to this in the beginning, but I've always been someone who kind of jumps in with both feet, you know, and, um, that's kind of what I did with my uh, transition into performance psychology. I just kind of jumped in, you know, and, and started swimming. Mm -hmm. So um, there are aspects I really miss about performing, but I feel like I get to live in that world still in my work every day. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's not performing myself, but I am still very much involved in that community. And I think that's been very helpful from a transition mm -hmm. perspective. Mm. That's interesting because you didn't have a choice, at least the COVID aspect of it. So it was 
I don't know, like the decision was made for you. You know, I don't know if there was a desire. Oh, wait, let me do one more year. I didn't get that. But to what you're saying, then you wouldn't have been able to put two feet in to the water at the same time with your master's program. Yeah. Um, okay. So then you went to the University of Denver for your master's program. Okay. Before I get into that side of things, because I kind of want to put the dance side to rest for two seconds. Sure. Was mental health spoken about? Was it something you feel like was addressed throughout your time in ballet? I think there were always, you know, conversations, maybe informal conversations about it. Um, Again, I think in the last couple of years, conversations have become louder and they've become more of a part of the culture. But at that point, I think not really, you know, pre-COVID, we weren't really having those conversations in a in a very standardized way. Um, again, because it was an interest of mine, I feel like I, I spoke to mm-hmm. other dancers in the company about their experience and my experience. And we had those um, informal locker room conversations, but, you know, it wasn't something that we talked about in a very uh, open fashion. Mm-hmm. It's actually a good point. I would be curious to know just the amount of time and attention spent on it pre-COVID and post-COVID, because I feel like that time sort of forced the hand of many companies, organizations, schools to be more aware of those sorts of things because of what that created in Mm -hmm. society. So that's actually a really interesting point. Um, So your master's was in sport and performance psychology? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how was your time at the University of Denver? I would, um, yeah, University of Denver. Yeah, it was good. I mean, it was a transition, right? I was used to dancing and rehearsing Mm -hmm. seven and a half hours a day. And then I went to sitting in a classroom for six hours a day. I mean, that was hard in itself. I was just, it was a struggle to, to keep my attention. I was so used to moving. Yes. It was so hard for me. But um, after, you know, quite a few years of trying to figure out something to do with my energy. I got into running, which has been super helpful for me um, because I need, I need something active in my life. That's just the way that I function. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's been really helpful to find another sport that I feel mm-hmm. or another performance domain that I feel really passionate about. So that's been super helpful to have mm-hmm. that kind of physical outlet. Um, but from the academic side, you know, it was great. I there weren't a lot of performing artists in my program. There was one other individual who who was a musician. So right away we kind yes. of Okay, I'm sorry. I, I'm so sorry. I just interviewed with the University of Iowa's PhD program and uh-huh. I, it wasn't until today when I was doing more research I saw she's on your website if, if we're talking yeah. about the same person. Yeah. So yeah, she's I, awesome. That's who you're talking about, right? Yes. Oh, that's yeah. so funny. Okay, sorry. Please continue. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Claire is amazing. Yeah. yeah. We, we instantly hit it off because, you know, a lot of the times the conversations would be centered around sport and the, there were professors who would mm-hmm. really try to uh, bring in the performing arts or other, um, you know, other forms of performance. But I think Claire and I got a lot out of going through that program together because we would talk about all the different ways that we could use mental skills and psychological psychological skills training in the performing arts, because obviously there are a lot of differences. So, you know, I think that was kind of the big thing in my master's program was, okay, all this information is great, but how do I translate it to the performing arts? So that's what I spent a lot of my time um, doing and trying to wrap my head around, you know. I think you made such a good point that I want to go back to really quickly. The transferable skills from essentially an activity like ballet where you are physical for six, seven, eight hours a day. And then if you throw in the gym or yoga or whatever on top of that, because we're crazy, (laughs) it's even more. And so from like, from my experience, I would go to the gym and then I'd go to ballet all day. Yeah. How have you like what I have struggled? This is more of a personal thing, but I'm hoping people can get something from this. I have struggled to find a bit um to be able to transfer because I feel like I can push my body more than I can push my mind, which is maybe it's me pushing my mind through pushing my body. So Mm -hmm. for instance, I can't study for six, seven, eight hours a day or read for six, seven, eight hours a day or whatever that looks like. So how were you able to still feel fulfilled in the physical sense, but push yourself in a very academic way, if that makes sense? Yeah. I think maybe it's, yeah. 
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it took a lot of trial and error, but now I know I need to go for a run in the morning. Mm. I need to, I mean, even today I had an early start, but I got in seven miles. I needed to do it because you ran seven miles today. Yeah, because oh, oh my God. Wait, what? <laughs> but it's it's one of those things where, you know, like I I need I'm a person who needs to have a goal. Oh my so for, for this year, like my goal is a half marathon and I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna push myself. And the fact that I'm able to get out that physical energy in the morning allows me to be able to see clients all day mm -hmm. or allows me to be able to study all day. But if I don't do that, I struggle. So it's mm -hmm. it's kind of figuring out what I need and how I can, you know, make myself feel most productive in those times where I need to study or I need to write or I need to do research or mm -hmm. whatever it is. Um, but that's been really helpful for me is is figuring out another physical outlet for me to challenge myself, both physically and mentally. So kind of priming your body so that your mind feels maybe comfortable doing what it needs to do all day. So like you had said, you know, maybe you get that exercise out of the way. So then your mind is free to study all day or see clients all day or do whatever else. Because that's the thing that I've struggled with is I don't feel like I have the same mental stamina that I do physical stamina. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's something you feel as well, or maybe you've built it up now over time. Yeah, that's another great question. Yeah, I think I've slowly kind of built it up over time. I really struggled at the beginning. And um, yeah, that was kind of before I found another physical outlet. I was trying everything. I was mm. like biking and biking mm. more and doing all these things. And um, finally, I found something that felt more sustainable for me. So that was helpful to have that physical element. And then absolutely, I think just getting used to using my mind in a very different way for mm -hmm. a long period of time. But that mm -hmm. that took time to develop. Yeah, no, that's fair. If your body is so used to it, your mind, I would assume, has to take similar time to get used to it, um, that new, new way of life, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. So then you transitioned into your doctoral program at Springfield College? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you are now studying counseling psychology. What year are you in the program? I'm my first year. Oh, yeah. your first year. Congratulations. That's so exciting. Yeah. So okay. all all brand new for me, but um, kind of what brought me to that was I finished my master's and I felt very competent in um, the performance psychology mm -hmm. side. And I had taken all my additional coursework to um, do more of the mental health work or get my uh, candidate licensure in um, Colorado. But I still felt like I, I needed more education in more of the mental health side. Mm -hmm. So that's why I decided to pursue um, my doctorate. But so far, it's been a, a really great experience, both from you know learning more, learning more about research and uh, getting more applied experience. So have you started any research yet? I, I have started research. What are you doing? What are you doing? This is more of like the nerdy side of me, less of the dance stuff because I'm, I, I want to be a doctoral student. And so yeah. like, I'm super curious, like, what are you working on? Yeah. So actually, you know, it's a really exciting project for me right now because we're in the data collection period, but I am working um, to create a measure for artistic athletes and dancers to look at and evaluate their mental health and mental performance. So as you know, there are not a lot of measures that have been normed or created on artistic athletes. Most of them have been made for more traditional sport populations. And unfortunately, we use those in the performing arts, but we don't really know how transferable those are. Um, so it felt important to create something like that. Um, and that idea really just came out of the frustration of always trying to find a screener or measure to mm. use. There never was any. So, Ooh, so you're going to make it. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm working um, with a research team to do that. That's not, you know, I, this is something I'm really passionate about, but I've got a whole team of people helping me with this project because it is pretty extensive um, to, to develop a measure and to make sure that it's valid and reliable. So um, that's kind of the biggest project right now. So um, we're in the data collection phase. So any dancers or artistic athletes who want to participate, it's I was going to say, plug survey. it. How can we support? Yeah. So um, there's a survey that you can take that's on Qualtrics. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes. 
The really cool thing about it is that once you take the survey, you're actually going to get a report of feedback. So it'll tell you, you know, you scored really high on this or you scored really low on this. Um, and it'll give you some things to think about as you move forward. So amazing. Um, you can access that on uh, my social media page on Persistent Psych. Mm -hmm. There's a, a link in the bio for that. And then periodically, I just kind of post it so we can get more participants yes. because Obviously, the more data we have, the better the research. So mm -hmm. um, we're trying to get as many people as we can to participate in that. Amazing. And I will also put the link in the, the description of this episode for people that are listening. I think that's, that's a really good transition. Um, talk to me about Persistent Psych. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Persistent Psych is a sport and performance psychology private practice. So again, working more on the performance side and not on the mental health side of performance. Um, and the idea behind this was to create a consulting business that focused on performing artists. That's not to say I don't work with other performers or athletes. I do, but the focus is really on getting this resource out to performers. Um, and, you know, using my, my skills from my career in dance and also from my education to make this a resource that makes sense for people um, and trying to translate some of those mental skills and psychological skills so that they make sense in that population. So uh, through Persistent Psych right now, most of my work is one-on-one -on -one with performers. Um, when the really great thing about performance work is that we can do that nationally. So, um, you know, I would say that that's about 90% of what I'm doing right now. On the other side of that, you know, workshops for organizations, and uh, you know, group sessions that happen bi-weekly or monthly is a little bit of what I'm doing as well. But I would say most of it is the one-on-one -on -one work with performers. I saw on the website you had talked about on the homepage, you know, helping people move past mentor mental barriers and mental blocks. I'm curious, what are you know maybe the two or three most significant mental blocks that you see when people come in? Oof. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I'm thinking from like a ballet perspective, some of them are super on the surface and some get a lot more personal, but you know, the ones that come to mind for more of the surface level things are not surface level, but maybe less intense. Um, I mean, I think we've all been in a place where there's a, a skill that we just, we have a really hard time with, right? Mm -hmm. Like for me, it was jumping. Petito Allegro was okay. always mm -hmm. the enemy. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> it was one of those things where I knew I wasn't particularly strong in it. And I always got feedback about not being particularly strong in it. So now I have a complex about not particularly being strong in it, you know, so helping someone kind of move past that because mm. we know there's such a huge mind body connection. So how can someone develop a, a healthier relationship with something like Petit Allegro so that they feel confident and motivated to work on it instead of feeling like, you know, this is a fixed skill. I'm never going to be able to get better. Um, so I would say there's, you know, blocks that happened around skills like that. I would say there's kind of blocks that happened with bigger topics, like walking away from sport or performance or doing like a career transition. Sometimes there's some blocks around that. Um, but I think that's something we've all experienced, you know, where we get feedback all the time about something that we need to improve. And, and because of that, maybe we're feeling less motivated to work on it, or we've just kind of decided that we're never going to be better at it. Um, so being able to kind of move past that and have a new relationship with those challenges. Mm. I love that. So the thing that came to my mind when you said that is shifting your identity around something. Like mm -hmm. I, I, I know that when I, before I started my master's program, I did not identify someone who read, like I was not a reader. I'm not a writer, you know, whatever, anything to do with English language arts wasn't my thing, but I, I had a, I, my own mental block of, I need to shift my identity around reading if I'm going to succeed in this program, because as you know, within a master's program, it's all reading, <laughs> you know, all yeah. reading and writing. And so I'm, I'm wondering if that's kind of similar to what you're speaking of is like, you have to, figure out how to shift your frame of mind, your mindset, your identity around that skill that you lack or that you want to work on. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a great example. The other one that comes to mind is, you know, when people think about math, right? Mm -hmm. so those people who love math and then yes. there's it's only, it's only one or the other. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But trying to develop a different relationship with something that's challenging for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's amazing. Beautiful. All right. 
Um, really quickly, I know we're kind of coming down the stretch here. I want to be aware of our time. What does self-care look like for you? How do you bring some sort of balance to your life? Yeah, that's always a challenge. I'm wearing a lot of different hats right mm -hmm. now between research and being a student and yes. having practice. So it is a, it is something that I, I work to incorporate, but I would say running has been a great thing for me for self-care. Getting outside is extremely important for me. I really enjoy being in nature and it helps me have a, a better sense of perspective. Um, and then also trying to make time for my family and friends, you know, um, trying to set up time to just spend with my husband and go for a walk or, you know, have a leisurely dinner or something like that. Um, nothing fancy, but again, that's the kind of self-care that, you know, fits into my schedule right now and also uh, seems to work the best for me. Mm, I'm not sure if you're a fan of The Office. I haven't watched it in a very long time, but Michael Scott on The Office says, keep it simple, stupid. So. Yes. It yeah. doesn't have to be something. And I think that's something interesting. And I'm sure you experience this too, is a lot of the times people think it's something complicated that can fix a mental block or some sort of, you know, anxiety that they're having. But sometimes it's just the simple things. Um, so I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. All right. Coming down the stretch. Um, first, I just want to say I appreciate your time because time is valuable. And so, you know, I want to thank you for being here and for giving your perspective and for also just what you're doing, because I think the more you know, conversations we're having like this, the more people are aware of what's going on, um, the the hopefully the environments and the more the world of performance and dance is going to change. So I just want to say thank you so much for being here and for doing what you do. Well, I really appreciate the space to do so. It's been super fun to, you know, talk about all these different things and a lot of things that I haven't talked about very publicly. So it's mm. it's been nice to explore that for myself. And I also hope that, you know, others can can learn from that, that mm -hmm. it's not always a linear journey, but you can still get where you need to go. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love that. Okay. So this is the last kind of five questions. Um, my quick hitter mm -hmm. questions, I call them the fab five. Um, mm -hmm. And then and then I will let you get out of here. So my okay. first question on the fab five is what is a quote that you live by? Quote that I live by. Ooh, this is one that I found the other day. And it is if you listen to the whispers, you won't have to hear the screams. Oh, <laughs> what does that mean to you? I think that means checking in with yourself. Like if you're very aware of what's happening in your life, you know, you can make those small changes before it blows up into something really big. Mm. Ooh, okay. I'm thinking of a lot of different things when you say that, like the spillover effect and. Mm -hmm. just that's that's incredible i love that i haven't heard that one thank you yeah um okay um question number two what is the greatest piece of advice you would give a younger version of you i think i would just say to keep putting one foot in front of the other you know like put your head down and work hard and you're gonna get where you need to go mm. again keep it simple i love it mm -hmm. um what are your top three favorite books or podcasts Ooh, podcast. Uh, so recently, the Strength Running podcast has been a mm. great one for me. Mm. I also love the podcast the APA puts on. Um, mm, they bring cool. on a lot of different psychologists and talk about different things, which is really interesting. I also really like conversations on dance. Um, it keeps me very well aware of what's happening in the dance world. And, uh, you know, it, it's fun to, to hear voices that, you know, I'm pretty familiar with. So mm -hmm. enjoy those three. That's awesome. Okay, very cool. Um, question number four, if you could host five dinner guests, dead or alive, who would they be? Man, that's that's a hard one. You know, I think I would do all family members. And I know that's such a boring answer. But, you know, I think that that social support aspect is so huge. And uh, yeah, I think it would be all family, to be honest. My family, they are my best friends. So you not a boring <laughs> answer to me. I love it. <laughs> Um, okay. This is my, okay. So I have like a five a and five B I haven't figured out how I want. It's supposed to be the fab five. I haven't figured out which question I want to get rid of yet. So five a is who do you want to hear next on the mental game? Who do I want to hear next on the mental game? Oh my gosh. So many people, but honestly, I'm excited to see what you do with it. You know, oh. I, I am, I think, uh, it's a great, it's a great platform to meet new people. And I think, you know, anyone that you invite is going to have some great things to say. So 
Um, I'll leave that one up to you. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. I appreciate the compliment. I'll take it. <laughs> um, all right. So last question, I promise. What is your definition of success? Hmm. I think my definition of success is always pushing forward. You know, it's that concept of it doesn't matter how many times you fall, like you just got to keep getting up. Um, and that's that success to me is being passionate about something and working towards it. Um, and that can look a lot of different ways. Mm, I love it. Ariana, thank you so much for being here and thank you for taking the time. This was super fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Mental Game. If you made it this far, I want you to know how much I appreciate you listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and like, subscribe, leave a review. And over on social media, let me know what you think. Let me know what you thought of the episode. If there's anything in particular you want to hear, if there's anyone you want to hear from, uh, if not, then tune in to the next episode. Thank you so much.